Well, it seems like it's been a long time coming, and it has, but it's here. Another edition of the Good Good Golf Podcast, Book Club Edition. The last time we filled this space, we were discussing one of the most important and beloved books ever written on the topic of golf courses and golf course architecture, The World Atlas of Golf. Our book today also has to do with the golf course, a very famous one, but so much more as well, which we'll get to in a moment. I'm Derek Duncan, and it's nice to be back in the Good Good Golf Easy Chair. It's as warm and as comfortable as I remember it as I come to you from the remote Georgia Auxiliary Studio. And joining me now, all the way around the globe, in the home studios in Australia, are my two co-hosts, who are also ready to break down and discuss the book of the moment, The Match, by Mark Frost. Let's meet them now. The first you know very well for his actorly voice and unique viewpoints on all things happening in the world of golf and beyond. He's a writer, photographer, philosopher, and most importantly, your regular co-host of the Good Good Golf Podcast, the clever, funny, and erudite Adrian Logue. Adrian, it's great to be back on the mic with you. <laughs> great to be talking to you again, Derek. And uh, I've been waiting three months to see what sort of an introduction you'd come up with. And that was a, that was a beauty. Thank you. Very flattering. <laughs> this this uh, this edition of the book club has been brewing for a, a little while, hasn't it? It has, yeah. yeah. But it's good to get underway. You, you, this, I know this is a book that you quite like and uh you, you put your yes. hand up for this one and uh brought me out of semi-retirement did, yeah. to talk about it yeah good stuff and, but i'm even more pleased to present our other host uh who i believe is is making his podcast debut he can correct me if, if i'm wrong on that but uh, he's a young man and an elite player one of australia's finest amateurs originally from perth but is now living in the golf epicenter of the southern hemisphere in melbourne he's traveled around the world competing and studying architecture including a swing through the united states last year topped off by a victory at the U.S. Mid-Amateur at the Golf Club of Colorado. Of course, I'm talking about Lucas Michel. Hello, Lucas. Hi, Derek. Good to hear from you. Absolutely. So, Lucas, one of the uh, real rewards for uh, winning the USM or U.S. Mid-Am is a trip to Augusta in the Masters and the U.S. Open as well. What what are the plans with that? It's been kind of a a strange year to be a, a defending champion with those events being postponed and hopefully not canceled but at least postponed what's that been like waiting this time yeah it's been uh it's been a tricky one obviously um i'm sort of i'm trying to take it as best as i can and just use the extra time to to work on my game and prepare but um yeah the delays the uncertainty of it all and obviously there's people in a worse position than me but um but yeah it's been it's been tricky and um i am looking forward to getting back to to playing some competitive golf um we've played a little bit down here in melbourne the last couple of weeks we played a, a little tournament set up by mike clayton which was really good down at st andrews beach so being able to get a little bit of uh, tournament practice through through things like that but um yeah i'm looking forward to getting over to the states in about a month's time and um going to the usm first at bandon dunes and then staying all the way through hopefully if i can get my visa sorted um all the way through till after the Masters and then back home after that. So, yeah, I got the US Open, uh, USM first, US Open, then the Masters. So it's looking like a good schedule as long as it all goes ahead still. Yeah, let's let's keep our fingers crossed. I hope that does happen for all for your sake and all of our sakes. Yeah. We're obviously here today to talk about The Match. It's uh, a book written by Mark Frost, a great golf writer, a great writer in, in every respect. It was published in uh, 2007. And I guess let's just go around and... and, and talk about kind of what the book is. I, I think even for people that have read it, and especially if you're listening and you haven't read it, 
uh, just kind of outline what the book is about and uh, introduce the main characters. I'll introduce the main characters right now. It, it, the book is about a, a, a match between two of the four of the greatest players of the moment. It takes place in 1956, and it's a match between Ben Hogan and, and Byron Nelson, uh, two golfers really at the end of their career. Hogan is really winding his career down. Of course, Nelson retired in 1946, but would only play occasionally. And they're squaring off against the two most prominent amateurs who happen to live, live in San Francisco, Harvey Ward and Ken Venturi. And the match is arranged at Cypress Point. Uh, and so we'll get into more of these details in, in a little bit. But I, I guess, Adrian, I'll start with you. What makes this book significant? What, why is this uh, something that a, an author would, would choose to write about? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Mark Frost has this knack for choosing brilliant subjects. And the three golf books he's written are all fantastic stories. And this may be the, the most interesting of all. Um, and uh, I, I think it's amazing that this one sort of informal secret match has more legend and industry associated with it than sort of any modern attempt to recreate it. And, uh, you know, you, could, you can bring all the sponsors and media coverage and sort of massive budgets that you want. And uh, none of it is going to move the needle like, like this one sort of informal secret event um, has achieved ultimately looking back over the decades. And it's, it's largely thanks to the existence of this book um, that ensures that stories sort of retold timelessly again and again. And uh, as, as we know from reading, it's a story that deserves to be retold. It's... Um, uh, it's it's you know, very interesting, but more importantly, the four characters are very interesting. And Mark Frost does this thing of weaving biographies through uh, historical events as as well as anyone. Um, it's a, it's a fairly well trodden ground for uh, for sports writers in particular. You know, Frost is right there with sort of Kurt Sampson and John Feinstein and Herbert Warren Wins and Grantland Rices and and those sort of things. He's I think he's in the conversation right alongside those guys. Um, but he sort of stands out in his own way. He's He's got this um, – I think on first reading, and I've read this book a couple of times now, on first reading you get this sense that Mark Frost sort of removes himself from it. He's not He's not the narrator. He writes in this sort of point of view. It's not point of view, but it's he, – he gives you the internal monologues of, of the – of the main characters, which is very unusual for mm-hmm. um, an unusual way to approach this sort of writing. And in a way that sort of removes the hand of the director. Um, if you think of it in a film sort of sense. Um, but I think I've read enough Mark Frost now to see the hand of the author in what he's doing. And his influence is absolutely there in every aspect of the story. And it's, uh, it's evident in that the title, the subtitle of the book, the match colon, the day, the game of golf changed forever. That theme pervades the whole book, and uh, it does. He's, he stays on that, I, and I think we're going to explore that because it's really, yeah. it really gets to the heart of why this this book is was written. Lucas, what did you think of the think of the book? Did, is it enough? On the face of it, it's it's a it's a four person match. You know, it's a best ball match. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a hard thing to carry an entire book on. Yeah. Is the subject matter, is it, is it worthy of, of this kind of a tale, do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's more than a book, uh, more than a book about, you know, around a golf. It's, 
sort of tells the stories of four important golfers, or six really, with the um, you know George Coleman and Eddie Lowry. But um, you know, it's a revelation of characters, their relationships, their histories, um, and the game of golf in general. And at a time when it was it was changing a lot, um, you know, the passing of the torch in a way um, from amateur to professional golf being sort of the biggest aspect or most respected aspect of the game. So, um, yeah, for me, it was, it was pretty educational. Like I didn't really know that much about those four players. Like I obviously knew the names, I knew their playing records, but I didn't really know much about them as people. So I think Frost really did a good job at sort of explaining who they were and, and sort of giving it a bit more, sort of context um and yeah i really i really found it a really good read and um it was my first mark frost book um and i know it won't be the last i've got about six or i don't know how many he's done i've got at least three or four sitting next to me because mike clayton um happily donated (laughs) a few to me um to read after this one so i'm generally not a massive reader of books like i've listened to a lot of podcasts and that but probably more a reflection of my age um sort of 26 and sort of literature isn't um the, the first place i go to to yeah. to educate myself so um You're busy man yeah yeah but um no I'm, I, I really enjoyed it i thought it was a great book and yeah like i said it was more more about the the characters um that i found most interesting and learning about them as people more than you know what they are on a wikipedia page yeah i listened to the I audio with that and and I'm not ashamed to say before I read this book, I didn't know who Harvey Ward was. Um, mm. if, when you read this book, if nothing else, you come out of it with a greater sense of of a time and a place, this era in golf, and a, at a really full understanding, as maybe as full as, as you can get of – of Byron Nelson, of Ben Hogan, of Venturi and Harvey Ward. Their their histories are so well spelled out. Their characters are, are developed uh, as much as possible and it's interesting. I grew up, you know, here in the United States, watching golf on CBS, and and Ken Venturi was just kind of the old, uh, crusty old, you know, guy <laughs> in the studio. You know, he, yeah. and he, with Jim Nance, and he, you developed this picture of him. And I, you know, I knew that he had a great playing career. I knew he won the '64 U.S. Open. Uh, I had no idea that all this other things, you know, about his youth and and the way he came up through golf and his amateur standing and and. Uh, the, the way and, and, and really the story is kind of told, I think, through Ken Venturi. And I know that's because Mark Frost spent a lot of time with, with Venturi. And I think Venturi was very open with him. And you really get a full sense of, of what Venturi was was like when he was he was young. And, and there's a there's a term kind of uh, to describe, I think, the way Frost uses Venturi, especially it is it's like it's he anthropomorphizes venturi in the sense that he inhabits that character he gives venturi uh, more of a human-like quality in the story than i think he can do with the other players harvey ward had already passed away um nelson was was very helpful in the in the uh, creation of this book as well ben hogan was long gone and nobody knew ben hogan so a lot of the things that you get in in the book in the sense of storytelling you know you get things like uh Ken Venturi, you know, when Hogan goes on a hot streak, you know, he, he'll write, you know, Venturi knew that they were in trouble. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Venturi mm-hmm. thought this, you know, Ken was aware of this, you know, so he was, he's really getting inside uh, of Venturi's head more. Uh, it, it's, uh, 
he's observing the other players and the scene, but he's he's being more intuitive with with the way he describes Venturi. But anyway, I guess my point is that it was it's kind of neat to see uh, other sides of these characters that, for most of us, are are just sort of like uh, iconic figures in in golf. But but maybe there's not a lot of humanity behind them, and we definitely get that in this book that humanity, that depth, and and what's behind the veil, so to speak. Yeah, just lingering on Ken Chir- uh, Venturi for a minute. First of all, it's a great name, Ken Venturi. It's just one of the great names in golf. And I think to make a great name, you need this sort of combination of a complicated surname and a really simple first name. Like, you know, Dow Finsterwall is the is the ultimate expression of that. Right. But, but Ken Venturi is a great name as well. And like you, Derek, I, I just sort of knew him as the crusty commentator on the Masters each year. Yeah. And uh, I loved his voice and the weird sort of out of – tempo comments that he'd make every now and then uh but i didn't know a lot about his playing career and i i think i learned somewhere along the line about his us open win at congressional but that that's about as much as i knew about him and uh this book really brings him to life and as you say uh, mark frost obviously had a fair bit of access to to venturi a lot of it is written from his point of view those internal monologue um discussions are, are all sort of from ken ken's point of view um and the other characters aren't they're not cardboard cutouts but they're they're not fully uh, they're, they're not fully embodied as much as as venturi is as you say yeah what did you guys think of the the device when on this topic of, of how an author inhabits his characters and it, you know he could he could really get inside ken venturi's head because they had a lot of discussions a little bit with byron nelson but there are all these scenes in where uh you know he'll say like Hogan turned and gave him a wink or so-and-so, yes. you know, he, he nudged his partner in the shoulder. Like, these are completely like, uh, I mean, I guess somebody that he talked to might've had a memory of that, but a lot of that is, is taking, you know, authorial, um, you know, being just creative <laughs> license in a way to, to develop that. Did that work for you? Those little instances like that, where you're kind of like, if you thought about it all, you say, I don't, he couldn't have known that. I'm, I'm going to say, no, it didn't work for me, but after it's it's just the one thing in all of Mark Frost's books that you have to suspend belief with, and for me, if you it it actually takes me out of the story because I'm thinking to myself all the time, you know he's he just can't have known that he didn't have shot link he does he doesn't know <laughs> where that drive went yeah. he, he didn't there was no cameras on these guys I don't know what they were doing, but at the same time if I can do this little trick in my mind to just suspend belief on that, then it actually draws you deeper into the story. So that, there's this weird sort of dance I play with when I'm reading a Mark Frost book is, is trying to suspend belief over those points and just let it let myself uh, you know, wade into it. And then yeah. you, you get a much more immersive experience out of the book. It, it's actually an interesting style. Yeah. Lucas, yeah. you mentioned a minute ago uh, about the character development and maybe you didn't uh, weren't aware of a lot of the, the backstories perhaps or are you do you have uh, a, a lot of understanding or any understanding or maybe even more than my understanding of this era in golf like the, the 1940s and 50s where a lot of the story takes place Did, was this uh, kind of like interesting for you to learn about some of that that period in American golf yeah I mean I'd always thought I, I knew that this amateur pro divide existed and the pros were almost considered like second-class citizens, not allowed into the clubhouse and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I also didn't really realise that the the amateur sort of rule bending um, was was that prevalent even back 
back then and even before that like I think I think there's a there's a quote in the book about how even Francis we met was considered like a a rule bender of, yeah. of the status and I he, mean he worked he in a won, sports store yeah, or something yeah. <laughs> that was that was a long time ago so it's obvious that the uh, the amateur pro divide has existed for a long time but also that it's sort of everyone's sort of known that it that it hasn't been as noble as it's um, as it's always tried to tried to be presented um, so that was that was interesting um, yeah 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 uh, I, I'm curious about that you know with, with younger players some of the younger players that I meet um, don't have a lot of historical golf knowledge you know and maybe it's because there, there there's so many more things that you can pay attention to now than you know the previous generations mm. were do, do you notice that do you the, the the young players that you interact with is there a sense of uh, a desire to learn about things like we're reading about in this book yeah I'd, I'd say definitely like i'm one of the more knowledgeable about that sort of older historical stuff just I don't know, probably, to be honest, it's probably playing golf with Mike Clayton. <laughs> I play play golf with him all the time and I get I get a bit of that off him. <laughs> he he um, infects but, people with this stuff, but, doesn't um, he? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's it's sort of out of sight, out of mind for a lot of young guys. And there's so much focus on, particularly for good players that I play golf with, there's so much focus on getting better and being a good golfer. And, and I think the idea of the history of golf and and the development of the game doesn't really, it's not a really a priority when you're, you're just thinking about getting better. I, to be fair, for some, it would be educational and certainly make them play better, I think. But um, yeah, I think it's just not, not a priority for a lot of young people. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this book is really, um, like I said, it's, happens in 1956 it's just shrouded in this aura of the 1950s and and then there's flashbacks to the 1930s and 1940s as frost develops the characters and tells you where they came from and and how they got there it's the setting it starts off uh one of those things that you just almost wish you were there at least if you're like me and you're kind of a nostalgic mm. person you just wanted to be in the 1950s hanging around being crosby and guys Clam like bite. that yep. it starts off at the old being Crosby Pro-Am as, as it was called when I was growing up and now it's the Pebble Beach Pro-Am or AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am and before that it was just called the Crosby Clambake and it, he started this in the 1930s uh, a, a professional and amateur golf get together I think it was the first time that that had ever been done and as the event grew larger he eventually moved it up to the Monterey Peninsula and they played it at Monterey Peninsula Club Cypress Point and Pebble Beach and they Frost goes back and tells stories of, of past events and how the event grew and how it was mostly just a, a drinking party for most of the week and uh, a golf tournament would kind of break out at the end. And and that's the setting of where these characters come together in 1956. Yeah, they're, they're at a, a cocktail party early in the week on Monday night. And uh, the, the two other primary characters, uh, George Coleman, who is a, a wealthy, well-heeled, uh, titan of industry kind of uh, who, who is friends with Ben Hogan and, and these other people and being Crosby and, and the the other char- main characters is Eddie Lowry a character from uh, the greatest game ever played it's a he great connection isn't it caddy yeah. in the 1913 US Open uh, a little short Irish runt 
Bostonite, uh, who grows up to be a, a pretty powerful guy in his own right, a self-made man, an entrepreneur uh, who runs car dealerships, and now he's out in San Francisco and he promotes amateurs. So George Coleman and Eddie Lowry get into this thing and, and they start going back and forth, a little argument, and they set a wager on a match. And Eddie Lowry, being the, the big talker that he is, says that he's got two amateurs that he thinks can beat any two, any two men in the world, doesn't matter who they are. And of course, George Coleman takes this as a challenge and then, and, and thinks he wants to get Nelson and, and Hogan together to play this match. And there's a little bit of backdoor wrangling that going on and a little bit of sleight of hand to kind of get these two guys to agree to it. But eventually uh, they, they all say yes. And, and Hogan and, and Nelson, uh, especially Hogan, uh, really doesn't like amateurs, doesn't want to be associated doesn't want to have to play amateurs doesn't you know perhaps even think that they should be <laughs> involved Certainly in the doesn't want to lose to them. level uh and 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 then the wheels uh, are set in motion and and this whole backdrop that i'm describing is is just a really i think really one of the, the most fun parts of, of the book it really sets the scene of of what you can imagine high society must have been like in the in the middle 50s it's kind of everything you imagine these these socialites and uh gathering and, and drinking and bragging and boasting and and of course they just can go play Cypress Point whenever they whenever they want to. Uh, Adrian, what I mean, did were you as enthralled with the beginning of of the book as I am? Absolutely, yeah. And like you say, I love that it it kind of opens on Eddie Lowry, and uh, that is a great connection between this book and the greatest game ever played. Um, and uh, I think I love those little spans of time that you get in golf where there's a connection between generations like that. And uh, Eddie Lowry provides that connection and you really get a sense of the sort of character he was. And fortunately, this is a situation where Venturi was there at that cocktail party. So I think it's described in great detail because of that. Harvey Ward was notably not there. Um, I don't know. How, he might have been down by the 15th green. In the cove? Yeah, in the, in the cove there. He, he damn near missed this entire book. <laughs> exactly. He did. Um, and uh, But they had every confidence that he'd turn up. So uh, it, just one interesting thing is it seemed like... Lowry was proposing a couple of anonymous amateurs that he had. But, of course, Venturi and, and Ward were really well known to Nelson and Hogan. And, in fact, you know, Venturi saw Nelson and Hogan as very influential figures in his life and father figures in some ways. Um, so there was – I found that a little bit odd that it was sort of presented as like, oh, I've got these couple of amateurs. And it's like, well, they, they know who they are. <laughs> there was uh, – that, that was a little bit of a, a weird device that I think he used there. Um, it's not like Venturi and, and Ward weren't really known quantities. Um, so. Yeah, you definitely got the impression that these guys all played a fair bit amount of golf together as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, then, then of course, the action uh, moves the next day. It, they want to kind of keep it quiet. They know that, that you know the two biggest names in men's golf outside of you know Sam Snead would, would be up there as well. Uh, they know that two of these guys together playing the two most famous well-known amateurs in the in the area would cause a distraction so to speak uh, you know people would want to come and see so they, they try to do it on the hush hush and I, I also really enjoy the scenes where they are arriving at cypress point uh, they make a few discreet phone calls to set it up and the pro rearranges some things there's some great characters in this early part of the the book the the caddy the caddy master uh, the, uh, the the head pro at, at cypress point um just the way things are kind of moving at a slow pace that you you couldn't imagine it ever being done like that again you know the guys would be people would be there with cameras yeah cell phones and everything but this is all very like deliberate very they have a fake old, tea time old style of communication 
there's the fake tea time at Pebble, and um, yeah, and mm. but it's the caddy master that that snitches in the end, is it? I, I think he he lets yes. the word out, yeah. And the yeah. head pro too. The head, the head pro, pro sorry, spills yeah. the beans. Like yeah. they wanted that was I didn't understand that you know that the players Hogan especially wanted it quiet. He didn't want anybody there, and everybody else wanted it to be broadcast as much as far as possible. <laughs> yeah. I, I must. I, I mentioned earlier. I, I listened to the audio book version of this, and this whole section has this really noirish sort of vibe to it. I don't. If, if, did you go, either of you listen to the audio? No, book? I didn't listen to that. No. It, the narrator is this this guy Richard Poe, and he sounds like he's reading a Raymond Chandler novel. It's it's got, he's got this great voice, and it's just perfect for the time. And the the whole setup in that cocktail party and this sort of subterfuge around uh, arranging the match. He, he does it in this noirish sort of voice, which he carries through the whole thing. It's a really great performance. And uh, it really creates a great atmosphere for this. It's very sort of um, era appropriate. Yeah. So, yeah. so Lu- Lucas, the whole setup is, is you know, two pros versus two amateurs. Uh, c- could you imagine it? Is there any kind, and this is kind of gets the, to the heart of the book really, but is there mm-hmm. any scenario that you could imagine where that would this would be possible today. Yeah, I mean, Frost does sort of mention that, I think, at the end of the book, saying that, you know, this would never be possible today. And I think I think he's right in terms of the sense of a true amateur, an, an amateur that's not intending to turn professional, despite the fact that both amateurs in the book actually did turn professional. But, um, but yeah, I think it's hard to say. I don't think so. The only example I can think of is like a Stuart Hagerstad, who's – has no real intentions of playing professional golf, yet he's actually a very, very well-qualified player. I mean, he's qualified on his, into the US Open the last three years, I think, twice just through qualifying, and he's the number two or three amateur in the world. So he's uh, he's certainly probably up to that sort of quality of player, but no, it's very rare, and, and, and Frost sort of talks about it. There's just so much money in the game now that, there's no incentive really to to have the noble the noble path and make a good living outside of the golf course because yeah the rewards on the course to make as much money as you can are just they're just too strong so um, yeah I think yeah I think there's just there's there's no possible way I don't think anyone would consider that a viable kind of route if they were that good of a player which is yeah a little bit unfortunate um, but. You know, that's that's the way of the world these days, I guess. Well, it's the whole topic of this book, isn't it? Is yeah. talking about the passing of the the great amateur, that era of the great amateur, which was uh, the epoch of it being Bobby Jones's Grand Slam, yeah. and these these guys, you know, idolised Bobby Jones, but you know, their their time was past, and you know that we were entering this era of the dominance of the professional golfer. And uh, it, uh, that's part of the historical context for this book and, and what makes it so great is that this moment in history, the moment in history for this story, this story in particular with these four people has passed and will never come again. Mm. And uh, I think that's why Mark Frost's subtitle for the book is just so perfect, um, being the, you know, the day that changed golf. It's, it, it, it really is the, a pivotal moment in history which can never be repeated. It's it's the only time when this match was possible, and uh, it's what makes it the only match that people will remember forever. Um, 
like nobody's remembering the the 2012 recreation of it with um was it Bubba? But do, do you guys aware of this? Bubba, I don't, yeah, I don't Davis Love the Third and Nick Watney remember. did a attempted to do a recreation of this. So yeah, nobody remembers that. So yeah, and that's why it makes it the subject of this book. It's almost it's almost strange. It was strange to me a little bit until I kind of warmed up to the idea that this was significant because it does seem so out of time. You just can't imagine a situation where this would have any resonance at all if you took the, the top two amateurs in the world right now and mm. put them against the you know two of the top pros. It, you know anybody can win in a match play situation. It, you know I don't know about the outcome, but it, it wouldn't be that compelling, and it certainly wouldn't be that significant. It would it would feel cooked up. So you have to kind of put yourself back in this time period and, and understand the lineage of amateur golf. And Mark Frost is very, I mean, he, he's not shy about sort of, you know, lionizing this older age where there was sort of the, the perpetual amateur. And I mean, he just, he loads up his, his viewpoint, you know, he calls it an aristocratic, you know, the, the career gentleman amateur. He, can, he, he uses these phrases that, that, you know, kind of belie his, his reverence for that, piece of history but i kept going back and thinking about what was so great about that you know is mm. there's something almost you know there's a there's a conceit to that 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 doesn't quite sit well with me uh, you know because implicit in that idea of enduring amateurism and enduring amateur status is is kind of wealth and generational comfort mm. you know and especially like when we look around my country right now, we look around the world. I mean, it's, it's just very obvious at this moment in time that how many people have been locked out of that sense of privilege. Uh, and it, that's really what being an amateur is about. You think about, I mean, you, you're so well off that you can just afford to go to Cypress Point and play or go play at your clubs. And it's just, it's such a relic. I, I, I you know, I was, <laughs> it's probably good that it, it, it sort of like, died out because it it wouldn't be helpful in these times to kind of be considered somebody who didn't you know who, who could live that lifestyle that's right it's certainly not something that is is replicable to to very many people it, it implies that these people go through life so effortlessly that they can be world class at this pastime in addition to being you know everything else that they are um and and there is this sort of yeah there's this arrogance about that isn't there but um yeah yeah and it's well it's just frankly it's just not possible these days to be world class at, at golf you've got to play an awful lot of golf <laughs> you just you don't have time for much else do you yeah. lucas i was gonna say he's not overly glowing of i think it's frank stranahan who's who is the like the wealthy <laughs> um the, the ultimate amateur amateur um you know from the wealthy background and um just seems like the sort of the cocky kind of arrogant type um yeah, his description of him's not overly glowing, but it seems like in a way uh, he admires um, Harvey and Venturi for at least attempting to make money on the side and, and sort of play their golf. Yeah, even if <laughs> even if they were breaking the rules, the exactly. amateurism rules, doing it. Yeah, Frank Stranahan's a great character in this book, and um, I didn't know much about Stranahan either until I read this, and I, I've read some other things about him since then. But you know, now there are Frank Stranahan still out there, but as we've been saying, they're mm -hmm. they turn pro right away. You know, they're they're the, the you will. I mean, we don't have to get into it, but you you can imagine that if you played competitive golf, you've probably met quite a few of them along the way. Yeah. Um, but, but he was a character. He got. Um, he used to load up his suitcases with incredible amounts of 
weights. He was a bodybuilder, and and then he'd laugh as the the bellhops and hotels like you know pulled their arms out of their sockets trying to lift them. And um, yeah. he was expelled out of the Masters one year, and he had to. It took him like five different apology letters before he got the tone right for for Bobby Jones and Cliff Roberts to have him back. And uh, that was it. Was a nice little sidebar. That every story needs a villain, and, and Stranahan kind of serves it in this book. Just on that, I think the Masters and Venturi's relationship with the Masters is wonderfully explored in this book and and other books about Venturi. Um, but uh, to me, that's one of the the sort of um, melancholy type of uh, themes in this book is is this sense that Venturi was destined for something great, he, and he was certainly destined to win a Masters. Uh, he's just the the perfect guy for that tournament, um, and he was you know the darling of of, of um, Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts. They, they just they loved him, and uh, they, it seemed like he had every every opportunity not just to win a, a couple, which we know he was um, uh, very unlucky in a couple of Masters, but it seemed like it didn't matter because he was going to have, you know, he was going to have an opportunity to win 20 or 30 Masters. You know, it was, it was going to be a long career of winning the Masters and it just was never going to happen for him. And, of course, he had uh, the, the hand issues. And um, it's one of the sad sort of aspects of this, that Venturi just never quite realises his, his potential um, no, and, and in fact, it's almost like a, a coda to this book or a subtext of it. It's, and, you know, this book is in 1956, the match, Cypress Point, but it's almost really to get to Frost's point. It's 1958 when this division absolutely is 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 cleaved between the old ways of the amateur world and the, the, the rise of the professionalism. 58, of course, is the year that Venturi and Arnold Palmer are going head to head down the stretch at the Masters. Palmer's ball embeds on the par 3 12th. The uh, the ruling on the scene says Palmer has to play it, so he chops out of the mud and makes a five. Now Venturi's got the lead, but Palmer goes back after he holds out, drops another ball because he believes he was entitled to relief, plays that ball, makes three, and they play a few more holes, and it's not till the fifteenth hole when I, I think they're I think they're tied at that point uh, that it's ruled that Palmer second ball the par his three counts that goes on the scorecard and, and of course palmer goes on to win by i think two shots um and that right there had venturi he wasn't who uh well he wasn't an amateur at that time but he's representing like the amateur world that was it the old world that venturi represented coming up with harvey ward through this old system he didn't win the Masters. Palmer won it his first Masters, and we know the rest is history. The world of golf shines its light on Palmer. Palmer becomes the biggest star. His legions follow him. Endorsement deals. That's the new golf. So it's really right there. It's it's Ken Venturi and Arnold Palmer, the, the two halves of this historical shift. It happens right there in 1958. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Venturi, again, it, it, they are very similar sort of style, charismatic characters, aren't they? Although Venturi, I think, during this period was... Uh, a lot more sort of sullen and um, uh, not quite the personality that it became it came to be. But nonetheless, he was a guy who hung out with Sinatra and he had uh, he had a beautiful wife, Connie Ventura. Uh, actually, <laughs> did you read anything about Connie Ventura? Uh, Vent- no, Venturi? Um, she actually had a small role in the Dirty Harry movie Magnum Force. <laughs> she was, really? Yeah. She, uh, um, and she's described in Michael Bamberger's book, Men in Green, 
uh, it's another great book. She's described as having Sophia Loren's face and hair and Audrey Hepburn's playful spirit and life physique. <laughs> so, That's, quite, wow, really? Quite a lady. <laughs> Good for you, Ken. Yeah. Oh, well, they got divorced, so <laughs> that was... Uh, well, like, maybe scratch the Audrey Hepburn part then. Uh, Lucas, one of the hard things about writing about golf is mm. is describing well, there's lots of things that are hard about it. Uh, describing uh, a golf course can be challenging, you know, without the aid of, of photographs. Describing play, though, mm. is equally difficult. What did you make of, of Frost, the way he he carried us through this round? You know, the, when they, they tee off at the first hole and he starts to describe each shot of, of that everybody hits. D- did, did that work for you? Uh, I think it was pretty well done. Like, obviously... He's got to talk it up a little bit to keep it interesting. Um, and there's definitely certain points where things get described in a way that you know it's not quite right. Um, and and sometimes, like like Adrian was saying, like you know he didn't have shot link, so how did he know it was twelve feet and four feet or whatever it was? Um, or any shot for that matter. Yeah, exactly. He describes exactly. over two hundred shots. Like he describes every shot. Yeah. There's- quite remarkable without without yeah. getting boring like they that's it's quite an achievement <laughs> but they they're not outstanding the important shots are well described but yeah it's remarkable yeah. over 200 shots i thought there was there was times where he talks about like the, the i guess the strategic or the psychological aspects of golf um where you sort of think like he, he's sort of talking the way like how hogan thinks you know about this and that to hit a shot and it's like well he definitely can't have known that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, that was sort of the part where probably didn't sit that well with me. Um, there was, I think there was one example where he's talking about, you know, the ideal part is to, like a long part is to lag it up short so that your, your playing partner can, you know, go for broke and try and hold it, which that strategically that just doesn't make sense like you should try and like hold every part so <laughs> there were certain points where the just the the idea of playing golf in some sort of chess-like strategic kind of cerebral way just didn't really it obviously makes for interesting reading but it, it didn't seem accurate to me like golf's ultimately about shooting the lowest score even even in a team environment and yeah the way he sometimes described things probably I didn't think was accurate to how a, a good good professional would would play around a golf. <laughs> mm. he, he's one of the situations where I feel like I see the hand of the author at play here. Like it's it's mm-hmm. a Mark Frost signature thing. Is that he he it, any one little moment like that, like Nelson hitting off the third or something like that? It's usually just setting the scene for some big moment a few paragraphs down the down the way and so a lot that's how he sort of gets away with describing a lot of these shots in a perfunctory type of way because they're just setting the scene like everybody's moving into position all and it's like you say lucas there's this cerebral sort of strategic Mm. thing to it he gets all of his chess pieces into position and then he he drops the hammer and releases the tension with some killer line and and that little cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats throughout the whole book where Mark Frost sort of builds up some tension in a situation and then gives you a release 
And uh, I, it, it got to the point where I was recognising this cadence as I was mm. getting into something. Like, it's like, oh, he's, he's building up to something here. And then, bam, Hogan holds a 12-footer um, and they move off. And yeah. it's, it's those little moments where he describes, he brings the hammer down and, and releases the tension on a moment that he's built up that I think keep you, it really keeps you going in the book, but it also excuses um, some, it allows him to get away with just blandly describing some of the scene setting. And, and actually one of the, the aspects of that is his description of the course. I imagine some people feel like the course is like the, the fifth player in, in this book, but for me, no, I don't think he did that at all. Like, it, I just mm. I don't. I think he barely did justice to descriptions of Cypress Point, um, with a few one notable exceptions. Is, uh, I think one of the reasons why, if you had a problem with the way he describes the actual golf shots, and and maybe some people didn't. I didn't have a problem with it, but I I definitely see what you're talking about. You know, Adrian. But it's really hard to write about four world-class players playing a golf course. I mean, they're all, nobody misses a shot the whole day. Yeah. I mean, and you can, how many times can you say, you know, all four of them, like, you know, stuff their drives within a 15 foot circle, you know, how everybody hits the green, you know, some are a little closer. Mm -hmm. There's really no drama in the, I mean, nobody's on the edge of, of making a double bogey or no, no team's really out of a hole because of a bad shot. So I think that adds to the challenge when you're trying to describe like a literally a flawless round of golf. It's an amazing achievement. Like I said, the 200, you challenge anybody to try and describe 200 golf shots and there's no way they can yeah there's only so many ways you could talk about you know you know he he, he hit it down the right center he hit it down the right center he hit it down the right center yeah. again and again and exactly again. so i it do also, like the way he I uses mean, a, almost, a lot of stage setting and then the the crucial shots he describes in a bit more detail well lucas what did you think of um adrian alluded to this a minute ago was cypress point uh, a fifth character for you adrian said it wasn't i imagine some people will I, th I think people will have mixed feelings about the golf course itself and how that's portrayed in this book yeah i think i think for me i think we're so lucky these days that we can just go on youtube i mean there's a great golf digest video i think it's a drone yeah. video of every cypress hole point. Cypress yeah point. yeah that is so it's amazing. like the imagery that frost does his best to create Still can't obviously match a drone video where you can see it with your own eyes. But he does a really good job in, I guess, creating those images in your mind. But for me, it didn't quite work just because I haven't played it, but I've, I've seen photos of it and I kind of knew what it was like. I knew particularly those last three or four holes. So for me, I don't know, it didn't quite, I don't know, it didn't quite resonate with me. I, I kind of found myself kind of skipping, not skipping, but, you know, reading more quickly past those parts of the book. Um, just in a way, not his fault, just, just I suppose, because of the way we're so fortunate these days that Instagram, you know, you can pop on Instagram and they've got 100 photos of Cypress Point if you want to bring them up or, yeah, like I said, that drone video. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think the descriptions probably did justice to the course. Um, but like I said, that's not entirely frost's fault would have been nice maybe i don't know if it could have been possible but maybe even some whole diagrams or descriptions or a photo here and there would have yeah, been that would have been a cool little that would have been one of the yes one of the questions would be this book came out in 2007 when 
none of the technology that we're referring to exists yeah, and wouldn't exactly. exist for many years. Fault. So I, if we were reading this in that environment, we, we didn't have access to hardly any photographs of, of Cypress mm. Point. I wonder if we, our viewpoint would be different. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Absolutely. I think uh, he's been hurt in a way by how much there is available of a private, super private golf course um, like Cypress Point these days. Mm. I, I, do, I just don't think it meant as much to, to Frost. Like he's all about the characters and the, the golf course is just the stage upon which they're, they're performing. And, and so he sets up each hole in that manner. It's, it's not like Bernard Darwin where, uh, you know, you've got these magical lines that sum up the character of a place with, with a sparsity of words. That's just dazzling. Like it's, mm. it's not, there's none of that. Or oh, with one exception, he describes the 15th as a jewellery box of a hole. I thought that was just an amazing description. It was, uh, if it was a little bit more of that, it would be uh, quite remarkable. But um, Yeah, it, uh, I, I think I agree with you, Adrian. Some, I, he does a good job of describing the golf course, I think, but I don't know that it's his focus. And I wonder, he, it's, it's a lot of um, building up of the golf course as well. Like everything is so dramatic. Every hole is like, has this unique character, which is true, undoubtedly. I just get the feeling that if this was, you know, golf match had been, had taken place at, you know, at Lake Reno, you know, or just some regular resort course or something that I, the golf course would have come across equally as well. Just because, you mm. know, that's what he's trying to, what, what he's doing is he's just building up this tension and, and, and painting these pictures. And uh, he did have great material to work with at Cyprus, but I think we would have got that regardless. It also doesn't really help that they were just striping it around there. Like they weren't really exploring the far reaches of the golf course. They were just fairways and greens the whole way around. No, they, they're just <laughs> destroying Cypress Point. Exactly. <laughs> So at this at this point in the in the podcast, I think we should put out a spoiler alert. We're going to uh, divulge a little bit about what the outcome of of, of the match is. Uh, so pause it or, or fast forward or something right now yep. if you don't want to if you haven't read and, and you don't want to be kept in suspense until you do. But these guys, as Adrian said, they they just annihilate Cypress Point. So the scores are ridiculous. Uh, ben Hogan ties his own course record of with a sixty three. Is it? Uh, Venturi shoots 65 and Nelson and Harvey Ward shoot 67s. And they, they just are, I mean, nobody, they birdie, somebody birdies every hole except I think two or maybe three. Most holes are halved with birdies. I mean, they're just yeah. ripping this place apart. So the, uh, the amateurs combined does, for 59, um, made up of 13 birdies, and the pros combined, well, spoiler for who wins, the pros combined for 58 with 12 birdies on an eagle, Hogan's eagle, which he holed out from 100 metres or whatever it was. <laughs> yep, the pivotal shot was on number 10. Uh, Hogan holds out with a pitching wedge. Yep. They kind of uh, held that with a wedge from 85 yards for remainder. eagle, and that's the difference in the round. The yep. pros win one up. Yep, that's right. They, did they halve every hole from there on with birdies and pars, I think? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Remarkable. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, so... So, I mean, you are – Lucas, were you – how invested were you in the outcome of the match? Um, not very, to be honest. Like, obviously, I wanted to see who won in the end just for, I don't know, sort of conclusion. But, um, yeah, I think, like I said earlier, it's not really a book too much involved about the result of the match in the fact of just a pure match. But it's, it is somewhat important to setting up the, the, the rest of history and, and the moving on of the amateur game and the changing of the guard and the, the importance of the program and the 
how that's revered afterwards. Um, but yeah, it, it's a pivotal point. But I think, yeah, I think in terms of the actual book and the entertainment value, I didn't find it to be that important. But yeah, overall, in terms of setting up um, sort of how history sort of changed that day and from then onwards, it, I think, yeah, it says something about golf and the game of golf and, and how it changed from then on. Well, it's symbolic as well that the pros win, right? I mean, that's... It, um, yeah, they have to win, right? Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. The story doesn't really work unless they win, so no. good thing that uh, Hogan hold that putt on the last. He had an unlikely good putting day, didn't he, Hogan? It started cold, I think, but then he it warmed up for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for somebody who who was kind of known for not really like to, liking to practice putting, he he sure got hot <laughs> during mm. during this match. He thought they One should thing count I was for half a shot. A little bit more of, of a sense, and maybe this is just a, a personal proclivity. Was during the description of the shots, I was went in thinking that we'd get a little bit more description of of the types of shot that they were hitting, you know, it's mostly like, you know, he had 120 yards, he hits his nine iron, it lands 12 feet short, right of the pin. Mm-hmm. I was hoping we'd get a little more shot shaping. You know, he flighted this ball down, you know, Hogan, you know, hit, hit this, this butterfly high fade forward that landed. Well, you get a little bit of that, but given the era that, it, that they're playing in and the equipment that they had and, and, and the course conditions, I was hoping you'd get a little more sense of, of, the artistry of, of shot making that defined great play in that era. Did you guys miss that at all? It's not something I thought about, but I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that would have illustrated probably a difference between the modern and the sort of the classic game back then. And it's something he sort of alludes to the fact that the game was more interesting back then. And I think at the end of the book, he talks about, the R&D developed drivers, something, something. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but he obviously has passion for that that issue and it would have been probably better if he'd had sort of padded out those descriptions with a bit more talk about how the game was different back then, which I don't think there was that much of. I think the Mark Frost style of doing that would have been to just focus on one shot that he found to be typical of each of those players and just to linger on that, but then go back to just the perfunctory sort of storytelling after that. Um, But he didn't pause to do that. It's one of the few rabbit holes he didn't go down, really. Um, Isn't it remarkable how he just, he mentions a name and you think to yourself, okay, that's that person's part in the story. But then more often than not, he just goes down and gives you a little mini biography or sometimes a quite a lengthy biography of these bit players in the whole bigger picture. Like we get uh, we get a wonderful sort of coda of um, Marion Hollands towards the end and, uh, and Cypress Point itself and the history of Cypress Point. But then in doing that, he goes into a bit of a history of Mackenzie and it just seems like there's no rabbit hole that he doesn't go down. <laughs> Um, it's the curse of the historian. Well researched. You shut it off. Yeah. Uh, that it, speaking of that, the, really, the last fifty or so pages of this book are really interesting. After the match is over, that's when a lot of the reveals come out. You you learn about what happened to each of these people, everybody who's involved in the story, what the rest of their life was like. You, as Adrian, you said, you know, a history of, of Cypress Point, a, a lot of different tangents. It, it's really worth reading almost in, as for the back end of the book than 
for the drama that happens throughout the match. It's not information you can't get in more detail elsewhere, but it's a nice collection of of ideas and and brief histories and, and a, a nice way to end the book is to kind of follow out the tr- the paths of of each life. Yeah, it really is, and the again, it's a, there's this sort of a sad uh, path that. Harvey Ward goes down and he, I mean, he ultimately finds a sort of a happy place yeah, to be I, I think, with his I life. Think we need to spend a minute on, on Harvey Ward, yeah. don't we? Yeah, we do. Yeah. But the, and with Harvey's story, I'm, I'm really reminded of, I think it was um, in uh, the movie field of dreams. When one of the characters says, you don't know the greatest moments in your life are happening when they're happening. And I, I really got that sense with Harvey Ward that he's, he's there, he's on top of the world. He's, Spending nights out on the beach by the fifteenth at Cypress Point, and uh, uh, and then being invited to play in these matches, and he's you know he's on top of the world. But for him, he probably he just didn't realise that at that point in his life, he's probably experiencing or achieving the greatest things that he'll ever achieve in his life. And not to belittle you know what he went on to to do, but um, I feel like he was sort of you know at the at the top of his game then and. There was this great sort of sadness that descended on his life later on, um, triggered by the the um, amateur status issues that he had, which you probably want to go into a bit, Derek. Yeah. Uh, Lucas, did you have any, uh, being an amateur player yourself, mm. I'll, let me back up and just say to explain if, to readers who haven't got to that part yet, maybe. Our, Harvey Ward was, as we've said, one of the, the great amateurs in the country, he won the U.S. Amateur twice. Coming off his second back-to-back win, uh, he got his amateur status revoked by the USGA because of his relationship with Eddie Lowry, who really sponsored him and uh, paid for a lot of his travel and gave him a job at his car dealership and essentially crossed the amateur line there. And the USGA revoked Harvey's license, and it felt that it ruined his reputation, and he spiraled kind of out of control for many years after that and never really played serious golf again uh until a little bit later in his life how did what did you how do you approach that lucas and from your mindset as an amateur player did you see any problems with that or did that make you feel one way or another Uh, i think yeah i think i think the book's set up to to sort of have a lot of sympathy towards harvey ward i mean he sort of put a lot of trust in eddie lowry and he got the short end of the straw um so obviously it was it was tough for Harvey. It, it it derailed his life, probably. Um, yeah, it was, certainly his pro career was was done. I think he played a little bit on the senior tour at, sort of in his late later ages. But um, yeah, it's obviously probably the biggest tra- tra- tragedy of the book is the story of Harvey Ward and and the USGA is probably it's definitely not as strict and it probably took a lot of learnings, I suppose, from the case. Um, they certainly aren't as strict as they, they once w- were. So, um, yeah, obviously a lot of sympathy towards Harvey. Um, he seems he, he seems like he was a great golfer, a great character, and it's a loss of, loss of the game, really, to not have him fulfil his potential, I guess. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point about the USGA. I'll ask both of you if you, if you thought, think that they got the ruling right without getting too in the weeds of, of, of Lowry's finances and how that came about. But it does, 
you kind of talked about the development of the amateur idea. I think the, this also shows that the USGA at that time was still kind of stuck in this mindset. Stuck's maybe not the right word, but they they um, embraced this mindset of, of the classical amateur, the Bobby Jones model, uh, the, the the sense of honor that amateurism uh, promoted and supported. And when they they looked at these, they took these breaches very seriously. And then, of course, now in the in the post amateur era, the professional era. I, I don't know if their views have changed, but there's certainly a lot of wiggle room in, in amateur definitions now. But do you, do you, Adrian, do you think the USGA got the ruling right? Should Ward have been stripped for a year? Uh, well, probably not. It was a cruel thing to do. Um, and I felt like they were punishing Eddie Lowry more than they were punishing Harvey Ward. Um, clearly, they'd put a lot of trust in Eddie Lowry and they had his word that he was doing the right thing all the while suspecting that he wasn't and uh and lowry had uh, like the, the line of what what was professional conduct and what was amateur conduct was pretty fuzzy i think and lowry had a sense of where that line was and it was um a very generous interpretation for him um but uh yeah i think the the usga thought well we just can't allow eddie to continue doing this and um uh, because he was in a position of responsibility. The, the problem was that he was one of their own and uh, he was misrepresenting the, the values that they thought the USGA should stand for. So they, were, they had to make an example of, of Harvey to punish Eddie, um, which I think is an emotive way to do it and just not fair on Harvey. So yeah, I, I, I think it was an incorrect decision, an emotive uh, political decision that... Um, Harvey got the short short end of the straw on. So, Lucas, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Um, I think there's a lot of talk. I think there's talk in the book about the USGA almost becoming sick of that sort of bending of the rules. Um, I think, yeah, they kind of did try and make an example of of, of Harvey Ward in a way to just try and turn the tide, I suppose, on amateur golf and probably later realised their mistake, um, having sort of ruined ruined his career and sent him spiralling out of control, really. So, yeah, I think they probably realised their mistake and, and sort of where they are now probably reflects that. They're a bit more lenient on things. Well, Harvey stubbornly refused to start playing professional golf as well, which might have turned his That's life true. around. So. I'm not sure why, what his motivations were for that, but I didn't mm. think that was an unusual choice for him. Um, but again, at the time, he was at top of the world and he must have thought, you know, everything in life is just coming to me pretty easily at this point. It's, I don't see why that's not going to continue. Uh, yeah. I've just had this, this setback. Um, I'll be back better than ever in a couple of years. But, of course, he descended <laughs> into <laughs> quite a depressing, like a quite a, a rut of depression and... Um, mm-hmm. uh, just really disappeared from that scene that he was such a central figure of. Um, but, uh, you know, pe- and people were reaching out to him the whole time and luckily he had the support of friends that um, he, of the connections that he made from that time that helped him out of that later on and uh, ultimately, you know, lived a great life. Um, Frost spends a great amount of time detailing this, the absence of a star amateur player in the decades after Bobby Jones retires, and you know the way he, the picture that he paints is that everybody's longing for a hero to come, and it probably wasn't really accurate 
to say that everyone was, but definitely like certain people were. Uh, Augusta was, Bob Jones was. They, uh, they wanted this new the, the classic gentleman amateur that we were talking about before to kind of fill in, and they thought it might be Stranahan and uh, actually maybe for about five seconds. But you know there had been other people. Lawson Little was going to be the next great player. So there's this void that that uh, seems to be want to be filled with somebody, and Harvey Ward was that going to be that player he had the golfing ability he declared that he was never going to turn pro he said you know repeatedly in interviews that you know he only intended to play amateur golf the rest of his life he loved his life so it was all teed up so i think that maybe is what held him back from turning professional he based his whole golf identity and, and his future on being sort of like the heir to, to the bobby jones amateurism standard uh so that's i that's the only thing that i can think of uh, and, and then the fact that, you know, he, he really felt that his reputation was destroyed. He, uh, he, it's hard to come back. It was very humiliating for him to be called out in public for basically breaking the, the laws and, of amateurism. That's right. And without a patron to support that lifestyle, because um, I, I guess I, I don't recall exactly, but he kind of had a falling out with Eddie, obviously, after, after that incident. And so he had no sort of patron to support that lifestyle. You know, the reality of that was, well, you end up working in a bar or something. You know, you've got to, mm. <laughs> you're on, you're on your own. Shopping for beers. Yeah. The other uh, great character in this book that we really haven't talked about at all is Ben Hogan. Yeah. yeah. I have a hard time reading things about Ben Hogan uh, because he just sounds like such an asshole. And he's lionized for, for the way he played golf. And he, he did he did become humanized more after his, his accident and apparently he softened, but I don't really think that he softened that much not to cast stones against him. Everybody's entitled to, to be the, the person that they are, but it just didn't, I, I have, I'm uncomfortable with, with the amount of praise that, that certain writers heap on, on Hogan where they, they always talk about how, how off putting he was or, or how, how curt he could be or how insulting, but he just seems like like just such an asshole that yeah. I, I can't square the circle on that. Let's let's lay into him a little bit. Yeah, like he he just he's very self centered. Obviously, it's all about um, his you know every every moment of the day is focused on improving his performance. He's kind of the Bryson DeChambeau of the time in that sense. He's think, yeah. it's just all about him. Very self centered. But I must admit, I <laughs> just as a little exercise, I thought to myself, who do I? Uh, identify most with of, of these players, and it's certainly not. I'm, I'm no Harvey Ward, and I'm no Ken Venturi. I'm not mixing it with Sinatra, um, and I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not hanging out on that beach next to the 15th green at Cyprus, and uh, and I'm not. I'm, I'm just. I'm no saint, so I'm no. I'm not as wholesome as a Byron Nelson. And I, it, it's a very uncomfortable. It slowly, slowly dawned on me that yeah, I, I, I most identify with Hogan out of this sort of. I'm the type who's going to be slinking about looking at everybody with suspicion <laughs> and uh so that that's that's where i landed on that but um yeah i mean there's it's no like I, I, people should ring uh, read uh, kurt sampson's books on hogan um which provide great sort of character to uh to help understand him a bit more and obviously his life was profoundly affected by that suicide of his father Mm-hmm. Um, which he, he witnessed and would sounds like the most harrowing, horrible incident um, where, you know, he did, actually didn't die for a couple of days or something. It was just awful. Yeah. Um, it says he expressed remorse over over the fact of, yeah, trying to 
kill himself and then he does eventually die, which is just horrible. Yeah. Do, yeah, do, yeah, do, do you relate as uh, Hogan? <laughs> yeah. For a few days. Yeah. Do you relate yeah, most about, to Hogan, Lucas, or do you see it's Yeah, like I haven't <laughs> read a lot about Hogan. Um, this was really the the revealing kind of story of Hogan for me. So, I mean, I thought Frost was fairly warm to, to his descriptions of Hogan, and obviously Hogan does develop as a character sort of as the book goes on to, into someone a bit more likable. Um, yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, in general, most of the characters in the book, including Hogan, are pretty favourably presented. Um, I can't really think of too many. Obviously, there's Frank Stranahan, and I think um, Sam Snead probably isn't represented very favourably. I think there's a couple of times, I think, when Venturi is playing with him in the final group, he sort of talks about Snead resenting his presence on the golf course and, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so there's... There's not too many characters that um, that Frost really um, writes off negatively. So, yeah, I, I'd like to read more about Hogan and just sort of see where he sits. But Frost was, I thought, fairly um, warm to him. You must read some of Kurt Sampson's books about Hogan. I think he wrote yeah. a biography of Hogan, but also The Eternal Summer, uh, okay. which is yeah, definitely I think, will Clates' favourite yeah, I'm sure it's good. Um, yeah. Um, well, it's it's hard to reconcile. I mean, Hogan obviously from 1947 until 1953 played some of the greatest golf that's ever been played. I mean, he became the dominant figure in golf, uh, and then after he comes out of his injury and and he becomes uh, well liked as well, which had never been the case before. But that does such a disservice to Byron Nelson, who literally, since they were kids, kicked his ass up and down every golf course that they ever played. Every I mean, single he, time. Hogan never beat Nelson head to head. Frost talks about this in, in the book. He just he just kept winning and winning and winning, and and Hogan was still struggling to find himself. And and Hogan, I mean, may, that's part of like the resentment. It's part of the reason why he's hard to, he's hard to like really. But there's this this great scene where. Uh, during uh, Hogan, or I'm sorry, during Nelson's uh, magical year of, of 1945, when he wins 18 out of the 30 events that he plays, he wins the 11 in a row. He's setting scoring records. He he sets the 18 or the the, the tournament scoring record. I, I'm I'm assuming it was uh, 72 holes. Yeah, of course it was. It was 263, and he set that in Atlanta earlier in this in this run. Hogan comes back and starts playing well later that year because he'd been in the Army. He starts playing, and he goes out, I think, in the Pacific Northwest uh, and shoots 261. And while, while Byron Nelson's been on this run, the, the press, you know, he's won 11 in a row. The press doesn't even know what to call him anymore. They're just, they called him Mr. Golf. Hogan breaks his record, uh, sets the tournament scoring record of 261, and he says to, he goes up to, to Nelson, who's trying to shake his hand after the tournament. He says, well, I guess that's enough of that Mr. Golf shit. <laughs> <laughs> Nelson comes out like a week or two later and sets a new record of 259. So he beats Hogan again. So it's just, it, it, looking at it from from our point in history right now, I think Ben Hogan is still mythologized a lot. There's something about him, and maybe it's the mystique. Maybe it's that that he never let anybody in, maybe because he's complicated, whereas maybe Nelson is, is kind of not complicated. You know what you get. He was just a nice country guy. He, he wanted to buy a ranch. He was a gentleman. But Byron Nelson, for walking away from the game when he did 
after those seasons that he had, he's probably the most underrated golfer of all time. And and Hogan never never whooped him. He he was completely dominant, and it seemingly did it in an effortless sort of fashion, which would have pissed Hogan off even more, uh, mm. given uh, Hogan's you know how famous he was for trying to find the secret in the dirt and just practicing till his hands bleed. And uh, it, yeah, I mean, it sets Hogan up as the sort of supervillain in a Marvel movie. You know, he'd be the guy. It's like I've I've been I've played second fiddle to you all my life, and I've worked harder, and I've tried more things, and <laughs> and like, and now you're retired, and everyone thinks you're great. I'm gonna beat you, and like, you know, this that that would be part of his monologue at the end of the movie before he goes down in flames. But he. Uh, right. Hogan, yeah, just it would have pissed him off no end, wouldn't it? But it's not surprising they had a sort of a rocky relationship. I, I, I gather they were never at times they were they were friendly for sure, um, and they travelled together for a, a long time, which was interesting. Um, and they, I think their wives remained pretty close. But uh, uh, yeah, that's right. They had they did have a falling out, yeah. which kind of makes that that something that. Frost maybe could have done a little bit more of is dry out the tension of their partnership throughout the match. You know, he says they really, they didn't speak hardly at all, but um, he also didn't uh, create a situation where, you know, you, you felt that, that there was any real friction between them either. No, he didn't, but they should have been the, the best of buddies and like, like brothers, mm-hmm. they should have been completely inseparable, but they, uh, they turned out to be, you know, just living their own life and went their separate ways in the end. Yeah, uh, Nelson was not even invited to Hogan's funeral in the, basically the same town. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah, it's it's that's a it's a weird relationship. But there must have been an awful amount of spite, I reckon, from from Hogan about that inability to to beat Byron in his prime. Um, but you know, Hogan Hogan's the one who history looks upon more favorably, I, I guess, um, in mm-hmm. terms of golf achievement. And as you say, Derek. You know, maybe Byron Nelson's one of the most underappreciated golfers in the history of the game. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's the that's the price you pay when you walk away at the height of your powers, and you know, and you're satisfied with being out of the spotlight. Which he totally was. Like, I'm sure he was completely happy with with the situation he had. It and seemed like it. Very long lived as well. It's wholesome living. He got he went through to 2006, and as you said, I think he helped uh, with the research of the book a little bit because he he died just a year before the book was released. Yeah. Yeah, Frost says he he did spend at least one long day going over this material with Nelson. Yeah, that's, um, that's what good living does for you. 90, 91 years old or something, I think it was, 93, 94, yeah. Lucas, were, were there any parts of the book that really uh, stood out to you or that you wanted to mention that we haven't talked about? It's interesting, the start of, sort of Frost sort of talks about how the, the clam bake started, and it, it sort of started as an attempt to to help out his struggling pro-mates, um, so I think the the fact that the tour really was struggling in that, I guess, post-depression, post-war era um, kind of sets the scene a little bit for the the way that golf's evolved since then, professional golf particularly. Um, that, w- that would probably be my my only point I can think of that comes to mind right now. You think but, we can um, blame Bing yeah, Crosby? Yeah, it sort of the- sets the stage for how much golf's changed and, and Frost sort of talks about it at the end. I think that last part of the book frost gives a pretty damning rap for the way golf's moved um i think he talks of modern golf pros being like soulless and 
yeah, just uninteresting um, financial kind of operators. Um, so, yeah, I think sort of the, the the way that golf's changed is sort of set up by that and then he really, in a way, pastes uh, the representation of pro golf that it is these days at the end of the book in that, that sort of last chapter. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think... Yeah, he, he does a really great job of setting up those early days of the tour in the 30s, back when, as you mentioned before, Lucas, earlier on, how, how professionals were not respected. They were looked mm. at as kind of sellouts, you know, rats who had to, like, scrounge in, for money, and there was something not noble about being paid to play golf. And, and and in the 30s, where they're traveling around, Frost does a great job of, like, talking about how what cities they went to and the cars that they were driving, and, and just they would barnstorm across, you know, the country and uh, play for chump change, you know, uh, Fourth place finish would get you one hundred fifty dollars or whatever yeah. it was, and and then slowly how uh, these characters in the book, especially uh, uh, Byron Nelson, really more than anybody early on, especially when he started to get really good in the late thirties and early forties, he started to change that, started to win more, uh, started to raise uh, the 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 status of the professional in the public's eye, and it just starts to grow and grow and grow from being this ratty like minor mini tour to being the professional golf association tour that that we have now and it's a slow process mm. but but nelson and hogan are really the ones and sneed and and others as well but those are the stars they're the ones who put it in front of the the public's eye and, and makes people want more of that I, absolutely I, I love to how professional golfers are all described as having sort of you know holes in their clothing and sleeping in their car and everything at that time <laughs> mm. but if they do come into money like a walter hagen or something they're they're like new money and it's all they, they blow it all on chintzy stuff and it's over the top and 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 still you know they can't gain acceptance into yeah. high society because of of the way they present themselves so yeah um, the contrast that he he talks about at the some of the first few clan bakes with the you know the amateur sort of moguls renting these palatial estates and flying in their star for the weekend and all that, <laughs> and then you've got the the pros staying in the modest sort of inns down the road. Um, they get invited to these parties occasionally. Like yeah, there's a big sort of contrast there drawn up about um, the, what pro life was back like back then. Yeah, they're like the entertainers that are brought in, mm. brought in, and in another of Frost books, the greatest game ever played. Um, there's a wonderful humanization of of Harry Varden, and uh, the I'm always sort of moved by this. Um, again, he does this point of view description of what Varden's feeling, uh, which is a remarkable um, literary achievement to to somehow travel back in time to do that. But um, Varden gets very sick. He gets uh, he's he falls ill with uh, tuberculosis, and he's um, in, in those days, they just shunted you off to some village where everybody else had tuberculosis and you just had to wait it out and see if you died. And during that period, Varden becomes com almost completely forgotten within the period of about oh, a year. Um, he, nobody starts contacting him. He's, you know, he's multiple major champion and the most famous man in golf. But within a year, he's almost forgotten. And he he's reflecting on... Uh, the fact that you know once they're done with you and you're just a racehorse that they just they don't care they'll just put it out in a pasture and um, you're no good to them anymore uh, and but thankfully you know he recovers from that and then goes on to um, 
achieve some of his his greatest moments, including the um, the Francis Wimet um, match or you know, participating in that. So uh, it's it really is that poignant sort of sense that these pros are just brought in as the entertainment, and uh, they're there to um, to to you know just be part of the colour of an event like the clam bake. Mm. Adrian, was there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel as uh, listeners and readers should maybe pay attention to? I did want to mention uh, Hogan really has a moment, I think, after, as you say, he gets humanised a little bit more after his car crash. I think America realises what he meant to them and just the shock of that, like a, a, a big sports star like that. And golf, I think we underestimate how popular golf was as a uh, as a sport back then. Um, it was it was something people followed and took a lot of interest in. And Hogan was one of the the premier figures in world sport at the time and had the car crash. Everyone was shocked. He came back. And uh, there's a, one of the great moments of the book, I think, and it's one of those situations, again, where Mark Frost sets up a situation, builds certain tension, and then releases it. He does it with a great line. Um, he borrows a line from Grantland Rice um, to describe uh, Hogan's first tournament back after the car crash. He plays in the 1950 LA Open and loses a playoff to Sam Snead. And uh, the, the, sort of, the line that Frost drops on you is, is from Grantland Rice's description of the event where he says, Hogan's legs simply were not strong enough to carry his heart around any longer, <laughs> which I just I just found absolutely staggering. I actually paused the audio book after that and just thought about it for ten minutes. It was uh, it was a great, Adrian, great little I snippet. I knew you were going to get that one. I'm so <laughs> glad that you went there. Yeah. I, I said Logue's going to be all over this quote. It's so good. It was so good. Yeah, I, I was driving at the time and I just hit pause and I actually pulled the car over and just thought about it for a little while. Remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, because Hogan plays great and he, and he has a chance to win, but he's just exhausted. He can barely get around the golf course because he's just coming off the injury. And Grantland Rice slams it home. Slams it home. It was a really perfect Mark Frost moment too. Even though he borrowed the line, um, he he created this tension and set the scene for this comeback, and then and then bang brings down the hammer. It was it was just one of those magical moments. In the well, book. I. I teased this out, so I have to do it. I wish there was a little bit more of this in the book, especially given the era that this story takes place in. And I wish he would have Frost would have done this a little deeper on all of the main characters, but he does it about Ben Hogan. And I'm, we're gonna, we are going to talk about the clothing a little bit. <laughs> Frost writes, Ben Hogan wore impeccably tailored light gray worsted slacks with a center crease sharp enough to open an envelope. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. A charcoal button front cashmere sweater covered his custom fitted English white cotton knit three button polo. His trademark short built linen cap on his large square head. He stood tall at five feet nine, never tipping the scales during his playing days at more than a middleweight's trim, 195 pounds. And then he talks about his cigarette smoking, but. I could have used a little a breakdown of all their their clothing. That would have been that would have been sweet. That is a great description, isn't it? And he he uses it as a way to highlight the transition in Hogan's career, which really occurred after um, Byron he retired. He finally gets the money. He that he's gets the trained. money to dress well. Yeah, and yeah, he, it's not he's not extravagantly dressed. You know, we've all seen what Hogan looked like, but he's he's just well dressed. He's wearing yeah. nicely and tailored Frost things. Does point out repeatedly that that Hogan always admired people with 
means and wealth and money and wanted to be a, uh, an industrialist and wanted his own company and he wanted to kind of run in those CEO type circles. Uh, and he did get to do that eventually, but that was something that definitely motivated him. That's right. Well, that's why he was a George Coleman man, wasn't it? So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Lucas, uh, any great takeaways, uh, final thoughts on the book? Uh, I, I think we'd all recommend it, but wh- what was your biggest takeaway? I think just that, just just the overall changing of golf, how golf's changed, the history of golf. I, I really enjoyed it for the fact that it. I didn't know too much about the early years of golf through that transition in the 60s and then to where it is now. And I think Frost does a really good job at um, just teasing it out, exactly how it all happened. And, and obviously the match is probably, if you're going to, pick a singular point where golf changed i think it probably was that match and i think it's a just a good way to highlight a good story um yeah i I really really enjoyed it and like i said i'm looking forward to reading a few more frost books um in the next little 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 while while i've got them borrowed off clates so yeah it's a good airplane reading for you yeah exactly Mm -hmm. yeah quarantine reading adrian uh final thoughts from you yeah, I think Mark Frost is uh, one of the the best exponents of this biography woven around famous events genre, um, and uh, this is perhaps the best example of that. And for me, it just gets back to his selection of what he chooses to write about, and Mark Frost has this knack of selecting absolutely brilliant subjects, and the stories that he chooses to write about are just amazing um i think all, all three of his golf books with uh the francis we win and the grand slam and this one are all just amazing subjects to talk about um to pluck this little tale out of history and and write this story about it and use it as a vehicle to do these biographies um is is something that mark frost brings to the golf literary world um which very few other people can do um, to the standard and, and as well-researched as he does it. And uh, I think that's what that combination of things makes this book great, uh, combined with the fact that he's he's chosen that theme to run through the whole thing of the the handing over of the guard or the, the passing of the great amateur and the, the ushering in of the dominance of professional players and making that the subtext of the book. He's telling you right there what the book's going to be about and then he delivers on that. And um, this moment in time, this story can't be repeated. And it's the the perfect uh, pivotal moment in history to to write about that theme. So I think that's what made this book special. And I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think even despite the subtitle, I think a lot of readers will come to this, the match, and they'll learn about the, the, the characters and, and the scene and and. They'll want to be propelled by, okay, well, who's going to win the match? And it's Cypress Point, and they're hitting golf shots, and this is like high drama. And it, it's really a neat trick that that he does what he set out to do by having this kind of be a framework for telling a much deeper story about American golf, as as both of you have, have very uh, aptly pointed out, the demise of, of the old way of amateur golf and the rise of the professional tour. And it, that's really what the book is good at and gets at in, in such a way and it it's almost happens on a subliminal level the second time reading it it really kind of sank in a little bit deeper understanding of all the, the moving pieces and and how we went from 
from one era of golf and transitioned into another. And the match is great, but it's a little bit window dressing on this much more kind of interesting story of of personalities and and how the game had changed. So uh, concur. That makes that makes three of us. Mark Frost, well done. That'll wrap up the latest edition of the Good Good Golf Podcast Book Club. Lucas Michelle, best of luck to you. Safe travels. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to, but I'd like to try to catch up with you in, in the states if possible. Come watch you play a little bit. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but I, I'll do my best. But thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Derek, for having me, and Adrian. Now it's been my pleasure, and look forward to hopefully catching up with you, Derek, in the States. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Adrian, like I said at the top of the show, always a pleasure to, to be able to, to sit down virtually with you and hear your thoughts on this book. Thank you. Thanks very much, Derek. It's great to catch up with you, and uh, thank you very much for coming in to host this. You've done a fantastic job as it's always. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun, and uh, until we get a chance to do this again, everyone, we're signing off. Cheers. <laughs>